after two exercise science degrees and over a decade and a half of reading research daily, I've condensed all the current science on rehab into a program called the Clinical Exercise Specialist Rehabilitation. Inside the program, I'll teach you to do three things. One, deeply understand how the body works. Two, confidently and expertly rehab literally any client. And three, get results for your clients. So ultimately, your clients tell their friends and you become known as the go-to expert in your area. This program is completely unlike any education you've done before, even if you've studied with us before, because of the way we've built the learning design. It's an online, flexible, skill-based learning program, which means you keep doing the skills under supervision until you're good at them. It's more of a mentorship model than a traditional course model. So rather than rushing through the content and having sort of one go at everything, you actually just practice live and we give you feedback and guidance and we dialogue and explore concepts together until you're highly skilled and confident. We just keep working the material until you get it. It's not rushed at all. It's not about ticking off the content. It's about engaging, practicing and applying it until you own it. This is a life-changing program, not some weekend certification. I've put my heart and soul into building this, and I can't wait to share it with you and help you discover your genius for anatomy and rehab. Now, because of the highly interactive nature of this program, we're only taking on 12 students worldwide. The program starts on March the 1st, and the first 12 qualified people to apply will be allowed to enroll. So if you're interested in learning more, click the link in the show notes and download the course guide or go to breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification menu in uh, link in the top menu. That's breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification link in the top menu. Welcome to Pilates Elephants. I'm delighted to be here with Hannah Teutcher. Welcome. Thank you for having me again. <laughs> First time's a charm, second time. <laughs> Scale of one to 10, how badly did I butcher your surname? Teutcher. No, it sounds great. So um, my parents still can't pronounce it, so you did perfect. Teutcher is perfect. You're very kind. <laughs> so uh, we're here to talk about, oh, I'm just going to, normally I don't introduce guests on this podcast. I get them to introduce themselves and I'll, I'll get you to add anything you want to add in a moment. But um, I'm a fan of Hannah's podcast and I'm really pleased to have you. I've recently been on your podcast and I'm really pleased to have Hannah here uh, with us. Um, there are a lot of Pilates podcasts I struggle to listen to, but not yours. So uh, Hannah, that, was, that was, wasn't really a great introduction, but it was just a little admiration. So um, how how would you like to introduce yourself? Well, first, I want to say thank you. I'm a big fan of your podcast, and I'm going to take that as a huge compliment. So I really appreciate you that you're listening to mine. Um, so how do I want to introduce myself? I, um, I'm a former dancer. I danced for many years as professional international career. Um, during that time, I also uh, studied Pilates and yoga and fitness and eventually after my career decided to open a studio in Nuremberg, Germany. So that's where I'm based right now in Nuremberg. Never thought that I was going to stay in Nuremberg. 
it was just the end of my career and it has turned out fantastic. So I'm here with my husband, Christian Teutcher, and that's what we do. Pilates and fitness and all the things. Hmm. And so you kind of were just on tour and then the tour ended in Nuremberg and you never left. (laughs) That's basically what happened. So I, I, um, we have this beautiful theater that's here, Stadt in Nuremberg, and it's an internationally recognized company. We do all the different types of choreography uh, from more in the contemporary side of things. I stopped because of a hip injury. So I had a very dramatic end to my, um, say, dance story, which is a whole nother... <laughs> That's a big, long story. But once that ended, after I had a surgery, I said, okay, I know now is time for me to have my studio, which is what my intention was all along. And I learned German, made a business plan and opened a studio here in Nuremberg, Germany. Never my intention to stay here though. Definitely not my intention to open a business in a second language, but that is what happened because life brings us crazy stuff. That's now like nine nine years ago of opening the studio, 14 years in Germany. I actually, uh, if you're open to it, I'd like to discuss your hip surgery at some point. Um, I think that'd be very interesting. Yeah, I'm definitely open for that. Right. So let's let's uh, come back to that because we're actually here to talk about the the invisible influence of dance culture on Pilates. Um, so tell me why, tell me why we're here discussing this. All right. So this is a topic and I, and I do want to say I'm, I'm coming at this as like you're saying, no, I'm not putting a value on this. I just, I've noticed over a longer period of time that dance has a huge influence on the Pilates world. And when we're talking about this today, I think it's interesting to have an outsider's perspective because these are some topics that I've talked with other dancers about, but I haven't yet had a conversation with someone that is outside of the dance world looking back in. So there's some things that feel very self-evident because this is the way that I've been brought up. Um, And Raph, I think you're going to bring something else into this. Why I think it's important is because there has been in my opinion, and we'll we'll sort of suss this out as we go, a very strong influence of dance into the Pilates world. And I'd love to sort of explore what things we'd what things I'm seeing, what things maybe are not there, maybe it's just made up in my head. What influences do we like and we would like to continue with? And what things maybe we can let go of and continue on as a as we're going forward with the evolution of Pilates. Hmm. So there are some things in Pilates culture that probably, and so this is like, dear listener from Hannah, enlightening me a little bit off air. Um, There are some things in, in Pilates culture that I've always taken for granted as a non-dancer as being like original to Pilates culture, which it turns out are basically just transposed directly from dance. Um, They're a dance thing. So yeah, give me some examples of, of how that, uh, you know, of, of things that are norms in the Pilates industry, um, a lot in a lot of places that really just are sort of straight from a dance school. Okay. Now hear me out here because maybe not everyone agrees with what I'm going to say and which I'm totally okay with that. We're just, we're kicking around some ideas here. There is a very 
clear aesthetic preference for dance. Well, our dance form is aesthetic. We have to fill certain shapes in order to be a dancer. So in order to be a professional dancer, everyone can dance. I'm not saying that. Everyone can do Pilates. That's that's a whole thing. But a preference for a way things look like is a specific dance-oriented thing. And if we were to look back, um, we'll go back to that in a second. Another, uh, another, I, I think very dance oriented thing is a Pilates body. A, uh, the way that we view what a Pilates body is, I think is shaped from a dancer's body. I don't think it is a non-dancer's body. And so we get a little bit confused about what those things are because I don't think Pilates will give you a dancer's body. I've noticed actually, just anecdotally, as you mentioned that a lot of my students who are Pilates certification students who are former dancers already had Pilates bodies uh, when they came to me. <laughs> yep, they most certainly did. <laughs> you know, and that's that's based on you know that form of the body um you know form follows that function we're we're working in a specific way our entire lives so much so that even the bones are formed around what we're doing young ladies uh, young girls they start wearing point shoes um sometimes as young as 8 or 9 years old before those bones are calcified so the way that the foot is being shaped in the point shoe not that they should start that young but that's Sometimes what happens, um, the way that the the bones are formed, the way we stretch from a young age, uh, also just the workload of dance, how many hours a day uh, dancers are literally working out and dancing and stuff. That also gives a certain shape to the body. So I'm I'm quite sure when those dancers come to you, they already look a certain way. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that that, uh, I guess seems pretty obvious now you say it, that that comes from dance um, because the, the the Pilates body does look suspiciously similar to the dancer's body. <laughs> yeah. And, and Ralph, I think that there's many, many dancers that, you know, whether they've danced professionally or they were, you know, a hobby dancer or whatever it is, we are introduced to Pilates at a very young age. Any any dancer that has been really taking dance seriously, going to summer camps or whatever, Pilates is part of that regimen of keeping the body fit or, or in their opinion, cross-training. So after a career or if someone decides not to dance, the next logical step is to do a uh, a profession that makes them happy. Well, moving their bodies makes them happy and it makes sense. Okay, well, I'm going to teach yoga Pilates, gyrotonic, whatever that is, but it's usually a movement, a movement form of it. So you find a huge portion of our Pilates teachers have a dance background in there already. So I think that's also coming into how the, a lot of, not, of course, not every, everyone, we're looking for diversification of the bodies that are represented by Pilates. But I think that heavy influence of where dance is bringing us is also why the scope of uh, the representation of Pilates body or Pilates teacher's bodies is a little bit narrow. Hmm. You mentioned uh, form and shape. And, you know, when I heard those words originally, I was sort of, I wasn't clear if you meant the form and shape of the body or the form and shape that the body can make as we move through different 
positions and, and exercises. And I just, I, I think now of like all of the things in Pilates that are just like, obviously from dance, like ballet hands that we do when we do our mermaids and, um, <laughs> you know, first position, second position, you know, in footwork, etc. Um, th- there seems to be a lot of, you know, direct transposition, but I imagine there's, you know, there are things that are invisible to me there that are sort of pretty obvious to someone like you who's who's done both. Um, what else do you see just in terms of the the physical practice of Pilates that is connected to dance or comes from dance or influenced by dance? Well, I would say a huge portion of it. You know, I we're going to be we're podcasting, so I'm not going to be able to show you exactly what I mean, but the carriage of the arms, how we're using our hand, what type of posture is revered in anything is for me it looks exactly like dance. So the way that we're using our our feet and footwork, those calf raises, those are our releves, you know, our um the way that maybe we are extending our leg would be a developé in dance. So you're bringing your knee closer into your chest and then you're extending it out and there has to be a point at the end of the foot. Um, that is directly coming out of a, a dance class. I wouldn't teach a football player to do it like that. I wouldn't teach a, you know, but I would teach a dancer to do that. But generally we're following a dance form, you know, a, more than that like that that wouldn't be relatable for another profession uh, you know another sports profession in the same way so it is aesthetic you know i think you know and uh much love out to all the male dancers out there but you know as a non as a male non-dancer all of this you know pointing toes and carriage of the arms and developé and ronde jambe and all of this stuff seems kind of girly to me. Like, I feel like I'm an elephant in a tutu, you know, when, I, when I'm <laughs> trying to do a devil a pay on the reformer. And I wonder if this is related to the fact that Pilates has become almost entirely female. You know, men, most men, you know, and no, no disrespect to male dancers out there, I freaking love you, but you know, sort of come along and go, okay, well, we're doing mermaid hands and now we're, you know, doing all of this. It's like, I don't feel really manly, you know, doing this. Yeah, exactly. You know, absolutely. You know, in when I am teaching, all the Pilates police are going to kill me, but um, when I'm teaching a a male person that is not a dancer, we leave out all of that stuff with the arms. Like bring your hands behind your head and leave a lean over to the side because once I start adding ballet on top of it, that's the first thing they're going to say. Why are we doing ballet now? Especially because they know that I'm a ballet, you know, a former dancer. So they're going to call me out on that. And it's, um, though they shouldn't be af- af- afraid of it, but it, it's a feeling of being emasculated. That's not what we want to do. Like it's, it's, we want to empower people. So if we're doing these, pre- what is perceived as pretty little movements, right but then it's not going to bring them further on what their their goals are maybe their goal is just to get rid of their back pain why am i focusing on making your pinky finger you know extend out a little bit to the side for a pretty ballet arm you know pretty ballet hands never mind that like male dancers they are some of the greatest athletes in the world but what we're not 
they're not being seen like that. You know, it takes enormous strength to, for a male dancer to bring a woman above his head with one hand, but that's just not all the time what you guys are, what the rest of the population is seeing. And so, um, there's also a stereotype that goes in there and rightly so. There's some, some funny stuff when we put people in tights and have them run around the stage. Right. Um, so what about the cultural side of things? Like, you know, all of, you, you mentioned this earlier the, off air, I think all of the Pilates elders, the people who were taught directly by Joseph Pilates were basically dancers. And most of the people who they in turn taught were dancers. You know, I was taught by Moira Merithew, who was taught by Romana, who was taught by Joseph. And Romana was a dancer and Moira was a dancer. And the sort of Pilates that I learned was fairly dancery. And I can only imagine that there's a lot of culture in the way, or there's a lot of influence in the culture of the way Pilates is taught to instructors and also to students. And, you know, that sort of is, is a holdover from the way the dance is taught to students. A hundred percent. And when we're looking at, you know, I, I haven't done enough research on each of, a, of the Pilates elders. So I'm always open for correction on this. But when we look at the dancers that were originally studying with Pilates, they're coming from very strict ideas of dance. So we're looking at Martha Graham and Balanchine and, um, Cunningham, who have, uh, Merce Cunningham, they have very, um, codified ways of moving. So that in that time period of American dance was very, also very strict the way it was because they wanted it codified. They wanted to really show how their dance form was different from the other dance forms, you know? And you take those dancers and then we bring them to Mr. Pilates. And I think maybe, who knows, but maybe some of that dance regimen was also full, like blending into what Mr. Pilates was trying to also create. So there's a little bit of rigidity that was there as he's also saying, okay, this is my method as well. There's an institutionalized way of teaching dance, which I think is also carried over perhaps in the way that Pilates uh, is now taught. That's a bigger sort of topic, but there's, uh, as dancers, we, we are taught certain things from a young age and it's not very often gone back and said, hey, well, what if we change the plie and it's a little bit better for the body that's in front of us if it's a different angle or we do this? There's not, there is dance science, but it, we're not looking into that dance science. And it's especially not that often taught from one um, at a university, right? Like we would have to go back and undo hundreds of years of a way of a methodology. And that hierarchy that's there, that's going to be very, very hard because I learned it this way. I give the next person the way to do it because that's the way I was taught and that's the way that looks good. Um, so that sort of lineage of movement, the way that we teach movement is very similar to sort of what we do with Pilates up to this point until you know, until there's a different mission for for like breathe education. What you're doing is you're saying, hey, Maybe there's an evidence-based way of looking about this, and then you go back and you have to rethink the information. So I think that is a brilliant way of looking at Pilates. It's also a brilliant way of looking at dance. And 
it takes time to undo some of that. I want to dig into that a little bit deeper because this is something I'm very interested in. Like in Joseph's book, Return to Life, you know, he, I don't know, I haven't counted it recently, but it must be like 40 or 50 times he mentions like lock your knees, lock your elbows, you know. It, it, it gets repetitive the number of times he mentions it. Um, so he very, very emphatic, you know, cautions, you know, knees must be locked. <laughs> um and, and, you know, all, pretty much every Pilates class I've ever gone to, I've heard like soften your elbows, soften your knees, you know, don't lock out your knees, you know, some version of that. And it, I'm always assumed that that comes from dance. Is that correct? There's sort of like two different ways of when I was really young. So we were always taught when you're standing there, you lift your kneecap up. Now, I'm an older dancer. Well, I'm retired, but <laughs> I'm a little bit, <laughs> you know, uh, in a different generation than the way that they teach right now. So early ballet, when I was studying it, is when you're standing, your kneecaps are always lifted, which would be a locked out knee. A little bit later, with more contemporary dance, then we soften the knees a little bit. And that would then be the go-to. That would actually, that's what I grew up with in the contemporary dance, soften your knees, ballet, lift your kneecaps up which would be a locked knee. So I could probably say that 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 at some point some teachers went this way and the other teachers went that way. <laughs> yeah. I'm just having this realization now. Did contemporary Pilates take its name from contemporary dance? Probably I mean that's the way I think of it. I, that's the way I've always thought of it. Huh. I mean, you know, there's probably like people all around the world listening to this slapping their foreheads going, "Well, duh." Um but I've only, <laughs> I've only just realized this like right this instant because I always thought contemporary Pilates, I just like literally translate contemporary means like current at the current time, right? So I thought it was like, okay, in the 1990s, early 2000s, you know, that kind of second generation of teachers were sort of opening up schools and starting to teach people. And I thought it's like, it's, it's an update. It's the Pilates for the current times, you know, in the 1990s and 2000s. So it's contemporary. Like it's not the classical Pilates, it's contemporary. But like now I'm saying like, oh God, of course, classical ballet, contemporary dance, classical Pilates, contemporary Pilates. That's, I I mean, that's how I've always kind of understood it is like a different, you know, and it was right around at that time, you know, that we're talking about that that's where contemporary dance was at its at its high rise so that's how i would i would describe it now someone else can say something different um again i'm not the authority i'm just <laughs> just the observer <laughs> huh this is crazy like this yeah, i've just kind of my brain's just twisted around a little bit in there <laughs> all right so that's why when i was learning contemporary pilates i was told soften your knees like repetitively. Right. So now I believe that in contemporary dance is an answer to classical ballet, right? So that that is, we have to go against it a little bit. So the lock your knees, the stretch, you know, stretch until the very end, until your muscles are twitching. We would also say like soften the, um, you know, a soft point. So that's also like soften your toes, point your foot, soften your toes. Like that kind of stuff would come out of the, um, I don't know if you've heard that kind of stuff those terms before, but that would also be the ans- the contemporary side of things. So it totally makes sense to me that soften your knees comes out of contemporary dance because that's what I heard many times and, and not just one form of contemporary dance, but many ty- forms of contemporary dance. Huh. This is crazy. So what about the, you know, so 
I mean, it's it's like it's literally staring me right there in the face the whole for the last two decades, but I just haven't seen it. So, what about the the actual kind of methods of teaching in a dance class? You know, has is there any carryover there to the way the play is taught and and the lineage sort of? I know that in dance, you know, lineage is a massive thing. Um, you know, who were you taught by and who were they taught by and what school were they from, et cetera. And that has really become a massive thing in Pilates. And I can't, I, I have to think that that's, there's, there's a parallel there as well. I think there's a parallel also, because like if someone, it's like your pedigree almost, if you are learning ballet and you are from say, uh, if you say, if you said my teacher danced for Balanchine, then that's like, oh my gosh, or my teacher, you know, even in the contemporary, actually also in the contemporary world, well, my teacher used to dance for Martha Graham, or I'm, you know, in my school, we learn this way. It is very much a, people understand what that lineage is, and it becomes a source of pride for them. So it does make sense for me that that would also be a, a carryover. But you also, like, I don't know if it's specific to dance, Raf. It could, you could also see that a little bit in the yoga world, right? So, yeah, you see it in yoga for sure. And martial arts. And martial arts. Okay. Yeah. Maybe it's a source of pride for all of us if we say, oh, just follow this line and then you get to the the guru or the master. <laughs> yeah. I think it's an interesting way of defining because I think, you know, most, I mean, I guess maybe we'd even do it in the fitness world and the, the, the PT world and the medical world to a certain extent, you know, it's trained under such and such an eminent surgeon or, or, or whatever. Um, is a thing, but I think it's a lot less of a thing in the fitness and, and medical world than it is in Pilates for sure. I, I think the modern, you know, current Pilates universe, that there's probably some kind of generational transition happening at the moment, I think, where I think you and I, Hannah, are kind of in the same generation. We kind of were taught by the second generation, you know, teachers and so we were kind, like, I feel like I was sort of trained in the old ways to a certain extent, but I don't stick to the old ways myself now. And, I, and, and I sort of see like the younger, when I say younger, I just mean younger in Pilates years, people who have started doing, teaching Pilates more recently than me, you know, there's much more fitness influence in there. A lot of people are using reformers like a gym implement, which is in no way a criticism. I freaking love that idea. I think it's a great evolution of of the art. But yeah, I feel like th- those, that new generation of people, the group reformer people by and large, I'm thinking, they don't really have that lineage thing as much or even at all. Like it just doesn't, that, you know, that doesn't seem to be a thing. I agree. I think, I think we're in the same, the same boat of how we learned it and where you and I are also looking towards. And I agree that the people that are a little bit maybe newer to Pilates are taking taking this amazing piece of equipment that was created and saying, okay, well, how can I how can I do my fitness? How can I get stronger? How can I get more mobile? And just looking at it as a piece of equipment rather than a lineage of things that um or a modality that needs to be followed exactly to a T on an aesthetic way of getting things. Instead they're saying, okay, this is the function of this exercise. How can we jazz it up a little bit so it fits for my people or the music that I'm playing in this, in this class. Mm. 
there is though this influence and you know maybe it comes from Joseph and maybe like you said Joseph was also influenced by the people that he was teaching who were dancers this idea of flow like I know that he was very big on you know transitions between exercises and getting into a, a flow state and you know moving through the workout you know smoothly and that is you know this the kind of modern fitness generation of people obsessed like if i could come out with a product that and just name it some you know flow something something you know like you could sell that to any pilates instructor they don't even care what what's in the box just anything with flow right and so i want to i want to say that flow is actually i don't know how much like joseph pilates was watching dance at this point. I would assume that if he had some dancers that he was training, he was aware of what was happening. But if you look at anything that was happening with Martha Graham or with Merce Cunningham, flow is their their classes. Martha Graham, every transition that you do is is the dance from one thing to the other. Same thing with with Cunningham. The dance is in the transitions. Every little moment is looked at with such precision. So I can imagine that that's the that is a important carryover. What would have influenced Joseph? Because I don't see why he would have put so much emphasis on how we're getting up and stand in from the machine unless it was unless it was from a dancer. I don't see why he would lay so much importance there. Mm. Yeah, it's it's intriguing. And what I find intriguing about this concept is that that element of flow, right? So if we kind of trace the the genome of Pilates or the family tree of Pilates from you know, Joseph teaching in New York in the 50s and 60s and 40s, all the way down to someone teaching a high-intensity strength-based group reformer class with dumbbells and you know, pumping, you know, electronic dance music, you know, in Sydney, Australia in 2024, like the, probably the only things that, you know, Joseph would recognize if we walked into that room are the fact that it's a reformer and the flow, right? So all of the actual moves would probably be different. Like they're doing lunges and planks and, you know, flying splits and stuff. And there might be some hands in straps and things, but it's like, I don't think there'd be like one single kind of original contrology exercise left in there, but just the flow thing is, has been something that has really, I wouldn't even say it's it's still there. I'd say it's like it's primary to the way that people teach Pilates pretty much everywhere now. I would agree with that. Yeah. Huh. Isn't that interesting? And that Martha Graham. Yeah. I mean, if you've never seen a, a, like a, even a class, if you don't have to watch a, a performance, although the, the Martha Graham company is still, uh, still working, I believe. I st- I, I saw them in Seattle. Uh, you did maybe maybe a decade ago. Yeah, there was there was some kind of anniversary of her death, birth, something, um, and they were giving a performance, and yeah, it was amazing. I, I mean, it was my memory's quite vague now, but I just remember like rolling around in body stockings happened a lot. Um, oh yeah, I, I mean that could definitely be there, <laughs> but what the. There's a, uh, you know, there's a dramatic element of Martha Graham on stage, but I actually love the classes more than anything. If you have the opportunity to peek in, I'm sure there's something on YouTube, um, peek into what a, a Graham technique class looks like. That is fascinating. That is the epitome of, plo- of flow and working through your core. Mm. Because, yeah, like when I think about this, 
you know, the fitness stuff. And I'm thinking about, um, yeah, my friend Nathan Ross Reese, who's been on this podcast a bunch of times as really an epitome. And I think a, a, a thought leader in this space, like it's basically take two sort of exercises you would see in any personal training session. Like, okay, so a dumbbell row and a push up or whatever. Um, and then loop them as a pair on a reformer, right? And so you, you make this little dance of a dumbbell row and a push-up on a reformer that flows, you know, and there's, there's, you can't tell when one exercise stops and the next one begins because they just, you know, blend into each other continuously. Yeah, so it's like Martha Graham, like, <laughs> this is crazy. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it's a do again, I don't know if this is right or wrong, but it is a different way of, of seeing what we're doing. Right. So I, this is why I, I was just super excited to have this conversation with you. Cause I think it's, maybe it's been staring at us right in the face. It's again, one way, one opinion on this. Well, I've had so many sort of musings and conversations about like, what is Pilates and, and what is not Pilates on this show. And uh, I've really come to the conclusion that it's it's impossible to define because there are so many different uh, ways that you can do Pilates. And even if you like wanted to be super strict and say it's like only you know classical Romanas Pilates done exactly per Romanas instructions is Pilates. It's like well, okay, well what about Contrology? You know that's that's different. You know Romana added stuff. So it's like it's turtles all the way down. Um, but maybe. Maybe I'm, my, my mind's changing on this because I think, well, all of those forms of Pilates, whether it's contemporary, whether it's classical, whether it's contrology, whether it's fitness-based high intensity on a reformer, they all have flow. So maybe Pilates is, and if, and if you took, you know, a dumbbell row and a push-up, okay, and took it off a reformer and put it in a gym and didn't make it a flow, it's like you're working the exact same muscle groups, but it's not Pilates. But then if you put it on a reformer, well, there'd be quite a few people in the world who would agree that it is Pilates and probably quite a few would say it's not Pilates. But a lot of people pay money to do it and believe that they're doing Pilates. So I think it at least least gets to be part of the conversation about whether it's Pilates or not. And yeah, all of these styles of Pilates all have flow. And if you just do the same movements but without the flow – I wonder if that's what makes it Pilates, like the flow. That is a great, a great musing. I, I, it could be right. I, I mean, like I would, I would say that I, I enjoy adding the flow. So, like, if we, any exercise that I teach has a breakdown of like, okay, you know, do the bicep curl, and then you're going to do a shoulder press, and then we break it down, and then eventually we're going to put it right back together so that the, the people do feel that flow. So what is, because I think for me, it's a, it's something that I value, right? I like that feeling of, of moving. So I would say that is Pilates, but I would also say just the, you know, if it's on the reformer, sure, it's Pilates too. (laughs) Just doing the bicep curl. Awesome. It's still Pilates for me, but I, but it's the flow, it's the flow part that I, that I, I agree with you. I enjoy that part of it. I enjoy teaching that part of it. And I think that flow can be there without being um, aesthetically pretentious. Mm. You can go bicep, bicep curl to overhead press. Yeah. I mean, 
you know, and we don't have, we could, we could do, we could do that thing without getting super, you know, oh, well, if your pinky finger was just looking a little bit more out to the side and press your shoulders down as we're doing, like, we don't have to get like, uh, you know, it depends on where we're putting our values on that, uh, on that flowy movement, whatever we do. <laughs> do. I don't know. Let's talk about that cue that you just mentioned, the, the shoulders down. Because that's 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 from dance. <laughs> yeah, that's totally from dance. Totally from dance. I I totally believe it there. And so it seems like in dance, it's probably an aesthetic thing, right? Like you don't want to see your prima ballerina with her shoulders around her ears while she's doing Swan Lake or whatever. Absolutely right. So so I and then it's again, what is valued in the form of the dancer? So a long, elegant neck. Like you'll hear us, you know, you'll hear a lot of cue, uh, dancers cue that long, elegant neck, press your shoulders down because that's what we've been told since we were little girls. So we must, it's so ingrained. We don't even stop to think about, well, pressing your shoulders down as you're walking through the street. And like, what is that actually doing for the rest of your muscles? Besides that, you can't lift your arm, you know, it's not very functional to lift your arm up and press your shoulders down at the same time. Um, unfortunately, that's also what, you know, a male dancer, when he is pressing a lady above his head and he's trying to press his shoulders down at the same time, try it. It's real hard, <laughs> but, uh, that's, that's what we've been taught. Yeah. Yeah. That's so weird because oh, that's what I was taught in Stop Pilates as well, which I always, I always thought, you know, and I always thought like the contemporary style of Pilates was so named, like I said, because it was like. It's the new current thing in the 90s and 2000s. And I thought it was all about infusing physical therapy and biomechanics into Pilates. But maybe it was much, you know, and there was a, there, that did happen, but maybe it was much more about the contemporary dance element because that cue of shoulders down the back, yeah, that's one I heard a bazillion times. And I used to get, it's one of the, it's one of the, or used to be anyway, imagine it still is, one of the five basic principles of stop Pilates is scapular placement and you know shoulders down the back is part of that principle and yet it is so contrary to actually the biomechanics of what happens in your shoulder girdle as you raise your arm you actually scapula has to elevate you know in order to get full shoulder flexion it's yeah so it's, it must be just a dance thing that's that's an aesthetic thing that's carried over and it's like this this whole conversation strikes me of as when like Years ago, when I was a kid, I was looking in this um, book, and I used to be into whales. You know, when you're a kid, you're into dinosaurs and whales. If you're a boy, anyway, most of us at some point, you, what was your favorite dinosaur? You know, but there was this blue whale in there, and it had an illustration of the whale with its skeleton. And I saw that the whale had, you know, whales have flippers, but they have vestigial finger bones. They've got hand bones. They've got five fingers inside their flippers which to me- That I didn't know. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing because millions of years ago, whales used to be land mammals. They're mammals, right? And so they've still got these skeletal structures in their in their pectoral fins that have fingers, but it's like, well, they don't actually have fingers anymore, but the bones just never went away yet. And so it seems to me like there's a lot of that stuff in Pilates that's like vestigial finger bones in a whale- that is like leftover from dance. It's like the shoulders down the back thing. It's like, well, it's an aesthetic thing in dance. And there's a point to aesthetics in dance because dance is an aesthetic form. But we're now, you know, treating Pilates in many ways 
like it's an aesthetic form where actually it's, it shouldn't be, it, in my view, it should be, it's about health and fitness. Yes. Yes. And this is a hundred percent. And this is also in a different way. What I'm trying to do uh, is discovering these sort of elements through my podcast. And this is w- what brought us together is like, what is still what is necessary from this stuff that we're doing? How are we looking at the bo- at the body that's in front of us? Are we teaching the body something, the person that's in front of us, something that is functional for the goals that they have, or are we going to teach them pretty movements? Because you you could take a dance class and have a pretty movement, or you could have a Pilates class and have a functional movement. We hope, but if we continue to go down this reign of just pretty Pilates which I'm sure has its place, right? We all have this, uh, have a nice place in this big Pilates world, but what are we perpetuating? Is it really functional and is it helpful for our our clients? Hmm. Well, I mean, I guess you, there's an argument there and I'm just being devil's advocate here, but like, well, for those people who are Pilates in the Pilates world who came from dance, it's like, well, I think it could be like totally comfortable and familiar for those people yeah, so it's like they they probably prefer it, I guess. Yes. And and that is I think that there is a preference there and this is kind of where where I'd love to uncover more is if there is a decision-making process of this is what I value and so this is what I will continue to teach is different from I have been taught this since I was a little person, and that's the way it has to be. I think those are very different things. If you really value the aesthetics of being that in your mind, what's beautiful, great, own it, continue to teach it. That is beautiful. On the other side, if it's just because your teacher before you said that that's what you should be doing, and there hasn't been a thought process of like, oh yeah, well, maybe I could let the shoulder come up because that is now functional, then then I think that's where the blind spots start to happen and where we need to undo a little bit. Same thing in dance. There's things that we've been taught from generation to the generation that are contrary to what dance science says is important. And again, I don't have any easy answers for it. I'm just saying that there's the way that dancers learn movement and continue to teach it is because we learn by rote and it continues on, so it makes sense because there's so many of us dancers on uh, dancers in the Pilates world that we will continue to do that same process, which is natural. Mm. Talk to me about perfectionism because I think that's something that I, I think we've talked about on this podcast before. I'm pretty sure we have. Yeah, it seems to me pretty widespread and common in the Pilates world. And you know, do you, to what extent do you think that? that comes from dance or is, is in parallel with dance? I think, this is going to be a bold statement, but I th- I stand behind it. I think you cannot be a professional dancer without leaning heavily into perfectionism. I think that it is, I don't know what the, the percentage of people that make it into professional dances, I, but it's pretty small of the hobby dancers that go into professional dance. So you're always, if that is somewhere on your, on your agenda, if that's your childhood dream to dance professionally, you're always searching for 
to get better, to get better, to get better. And that's what we're taught how to do that. We're taught to stand in a mirror and to analyze every single little movement that you're doing for yourself. That, that I think takes a high, high level of perfectionism, but it's also required of you of the, um, from your dance teachers. So you will do it over and over and over again until it is perfect. Whether you're rehearsing, um, you're rehearsing a piece of choreography or you are even just taking a ballet class. It's done until it's at the level that you are satisfied, but also that your coach is satisfied. There is a little bit of a, um, a dark side. Well, there's dark sides to perfectionism in general, but specifically to this way of going about it because our, there's a lot of verbal abuse that can be is normalized in in dance. So as we're searching for being better and getting closer to whatever that aesthetic ideal ideal is, it's common for our dance teachers and rehearsal directors or whatever to berate us on the way, which I think just up levels the perfectionism. You know, like ah, I'm not good enough. I got to do more and more and more. And that's baked into the whole institution. And I mean, anecdotally, I've heard that, you know, the likes of Ron Fletcher could cut loose at students when they didn't do it the way he wanted it done. And I, I guess that comes from dance. I mean, you know, obviously it does because he's, he's a, he was a dancer. Yeah. And that, I mean, that is, that is still quite common in the dance world the dance world. I mean, I haven't been retired that long. Maybe um, I'm uh, 14 years out. No, less than that. 10 years. I don't know how how many years I've been retired, but still within my career, like I had one director that would scream at me from the side of stage. I was doing, we were doing a performance at the Joyce Theater and he was still screaming things, obscenities while we were dancing. So He's a, probably a special person, <laughs> but that that type of um, verbal abuse is also very, very common in the dance world. So that can also uh, be carried through by some, you know, unfortunately by some teachers still, because it's just, you you do what you know. Perfectionism, I think, um, you know, gets a, a bum rap and, you know, sometimes justly so, uh, because like you say, there's definitely a dark side to it. But I think there's also a, a a light side to it, which is, I think, well, like you said, you can't be a professional dancer without some level of perfectionism it's because like, well, you have to be really freaking good, right? And the way you get really freaking good is you obsess over being good and you just do that ad infinitum until you are really, 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 really good. So I think there's a, I think anybody, I mean, imagine somebody who's an elite athlete in any, like pole vaulter or gymnast was like they must be obsessive and perfectionist because you can't get that good at something unless you are right so there's definitely a good side to perfectionism as well as the dark side is probably not very healthy for those people you know to obsess that much but i think where where i see a distinction is in pilates if i'm not trying to be you know the the 0.01% of dancers who make it professionally, right? I'm just a suburban soccer mum who wants to have less back pain. <laughs> it's like, well, how perfect do I need to be? Right. And so, I, yes, absolutely. So I second that motion with like if any per, any sort of high level 
anything. It doesn't have even need to be in, in the physical realm of, of sport. But if you want to be great at anything, you have to have a level of grittiness and perfectionism in order to keep going because we have to fail quite a lot to get to, uh, wherever that is, that high spot. And so the failing and doing it again, better and better, better brings us to that, to that level. And as far as the, you know, the soccer mom that's coming in for Pilates, I think the degree of it, it becomes tricky because we, we want to support what the goals are of that. So, like, I'm going to call her the soccer mom because <laughs> that's what we have here. So, you know, soccer mom doing side over box or some pretty, you know, adding some ballet arms doing, doing that. We can get, we can offer her some choices on how to make it better and better without diminishing her, um, you know, offering some choices, but not forcing her to say, okay, it's got to be better. It's got to be better. Like if it's self-directed level of getting better and what's better, you know, it's. Yeah. I think where I think it could be improved in Pilates is that like, absolutely. Like just because you're a soccer mom doesn't mean you don't necessarily want to get better at it. And I think that's a natural human kind of urge that we want to do things well, most of us. And so, you know, I'm all for that. But I guess where what I'm thinking of is, okay, she's just trying to do her side overs on the box there. And I'm there nitpicking going, oh, your ribs poking the wrong way or you, you know, something is not, not, you know, is a tenth of a percent out of where it should be, and therefore we have to stop and realign you and, you know, doing these 99 things wrong. Um, and so I think we often don't let people just, like, bumble through and figure it out and then give them a bit of a bit of a clue and a, tweak them a little bit, but let them basically just bumble, you know, <laughs> get through it and do the side-overs and get 99% of the benefit it's possible to get rather than stopping them and, you know, quote, fixing them. Yeah. And I would say sometimes we see that, um, sometimes we see it in something that probably doesn't have such a great effect on, you know, we're going to take side over box for fun. Um, you know, if the ribs are one millimeter here or a little bit back or close the ribs, very dance, uh, cue right there. Okay. So if we're knitting the ribs together, which is, I can't ex probably explain how much more dance that is. And we, so we're, we're getting on her on that and she's moving over the box. Like, wouldn't it be just better to let her move and do more repetitions and strengthen the side part of the body than start harping on her for something that's an imaginary cue? Like it really isn't going to bring her that much, I think. Um, so I, I'm all with you. Get the body moving and then maybe we could look at some things if it was like, or not. <laughs> we just let her do it. <laughs> I had I had this great conversation. It was last last week with Diane uh, with Diane Bondi, and we were um, she's a like a yoga Pilates uh, really interesting woman, and she was telling me that she she went to a Pilates class. Um, it's great. Listen to, listen to her talk about this. It was a she went to a Pilates class. Now, mind you, she's been a, a, a yoga professional. She has several books out. She's a, a speaker all around the world. Okay, this woman knows her stuff. And she went into a Pilates class and the teacher was correcting where her pinky finger was as she was holding the straps. 
And, and Diane's like, I know, like, okay, but I'm fine. And the lady was just harping on her and harping on her about like the way that she was like grabbing it. Or I don't even know what the, what the thing was. And Diane's point was like, I just want to kind of do the 100. Like I'm fine with it. And it was a, like an over perfectionist idea of what the hands should be. And I think that's where we get totally off base in that one. Very unfortunate, but kind of a funny story from her. <laughs> yeah. So there's, all right, well, there's this, and that kind of brings us to the the realm of kind of control or body autonomy, which you mentioned off air at the start before we started recording, which I, I think kind of comes to that, into that where we, I think, you know, that's the distinction, right? So if I'm Diane Bondi and I'm doing my hundred and I'm like, oh, where should my hand be in this movement? Well, that's different because that's me wanting to improve some aspect of what I'm doing and requesting guidance. Whereas if I'm just happily doing my hundred and you come along and go, oh, you, you're doing it wrong, you know, put your fingers here. And it's like, okay, like the hundred, you work in the abs, you work in the hip flexors, there's some breath in there. But it's like, how much of a finger exercise is it? And, you know, what what percentage of the total value of that exercise comes from which way your pinky finger's pointing? I would argue it's like there's lots of zeros after a decimal point you know, before we we get to the value of the pinky finger positioning. I agree. (laughs) I think that this is something the fitness-based Pilates people get right, I think, you know, more often uh, is they will make, like when I've talked with Nathan on this podcast, he makes adjustments to his clients because he wants them to work certain muscles in a certain exercise and if they're not in the right position to get those muscles working or they don't have the right number of springs on or, or whatever it might be, he will go and make an adjustment for them. Uh, but he, apart from that, he doesn't give a shit what they look like, you know, when they when they do the movement. So I, th- I think he gets it right in my view. Now, I, I, I agree with you, like you said at the start, like if somebody likes the aesthetics and that's what's of value to them, like I've got zero problems with that and I think that's wonderful, you know, and Pilates as an capital A art – I think is great, you know, but I think we get confused a lot with between what looks good and what is good for you. And they're not necessarily the same thing. Yeah. You know, um, I love, I love pretty aesthetic movement. You know, that's my, that's my entire life. So if someone comes into me, it comes into my studio and says, okay, I, you know, and when we're, when we're talking about goals before they come in and they say, okay, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm getting ready for a big presentation and I would like to work on my posture and how I'm standing there. I'd like to stand like a ballerina. You, you're in the right spot. Like I can help you with that. (laughs) We're going to do all the pretty arms. Well, I will make you feel like you are the prima ballerina, (laughs) but most of my clients are not coming to me for that. It's like, you know, I, I just need to pick, I need to garden without throwing my back out. Great. My fancy little fingers over here there, that's not going to help you do the thing. So I'd rather just do corrections to make sure that you are, um, you're feeling the muscles, you're getting the muscles work that you need to have fully functional gardening life, if that's your thing. (laughs) So I, I agree. I'd like to talk about your hip a bit, if that's all right. Do you, do you feel like we've missed? Do you feel like we've missed anything in the in that whole dance thing? No, I get no. Just to to wrap it up, maybe wrap it up for my side is, I think it is a 
going from dance into Pilates is a fantastic way of using our our skills as a dancer, how we see movement, how we want to give of our experiences and um, continuing their very rewarding um, second profession, if it's professional or, or um, going from hobby over to, to that. I think it's beautiful to be teaching. Um, to continue along that path, if you feel like dance has having too, like the, maybe the old ghosts of dance are too much there, seek out a mentor, seek out some, you know, for some of us, um, seeking out a therapist. That's also good because there's a lot of traumas that happen in dance. Thinking out a, seeking out a therapist to make that change over into a teaching life. That might be, um, a good, uh, a good place. If everyone, if anyone needs resources, I have a couple that I could send. Just contact me. Okay. That was all I wanted to say. <laughs> <laughs> and for those of us who are non-dancers, I think some of the thing my my sort of big takeaway apart from the whole contemporary dance, contemporary Pilates thing, um, is that a lot of the things that we that we get told are like, oh, this is it's not Pilates if you're not doing shoulders down your back or you know whatever it might be. It's like actually these are dance things. They're 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 imported. And the, the knitting the ribs together is another classic one that I've been told a bazillion times, um, which is, yeah, that's a dance thing apparently. All right. So that's good. So tell me about your hip. You had a hip replacement, right? Yeah. So I started off with an arthroscopy and then I moved over to a replacement a little bit later. Um, it was a labral tear. Well, we got time. Do you want a fun story? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, I will condense the story a little bit, but I'll go from the finding out that I have a hip issue all the way through the through the hip replacement. I was dancing um professionally here in in Nuremberg and my the front of my hip was hurting a little bit and I had radiating pain down my glute. I was trying to self-diagnose at that point because we don't have really breaks to take and we dance eight hours a day, um, usually six days a week, Okay, somewhere somewhere in there. It's pretty intense schedule. And so there's not that much time to see a doctor. So normal for us is just keep on going, deal with the pain and stretch it out and take some, you know, sleep it off. I was at a very, uh, I had a beautiful uh, opportunity to dance some great pieces and the pain was just getting worse and worse. So at that, at the point where I finally saw a doctor, I was at like, uh, I don't know if you, if you know what Advil is. So like just some anti-inflammatories, it was like 12,000 milligrams. Um, I was overdosing in such a crazy way and I was still not able to sleep through the night because of the pain that was there. So I finally got into a, the doctor and it was, happened to be the morning of one of my performances of the premiere of the thing that I had been, um, I was a soloist in. Normally, when you have the day of a performance, you go in, uh, the day of the performance, you would have a warm-up class. Maybe you do a little bit of a placement rehearsal. Then you go back, you take a nap, you eat, and then you go back to the theater where you'd warm up again, put on your makeup and go and do the show. But I had gotten this, I had been waiting for this doctor's appointment. And I knew that I needed to take it because it was just excruciating pain. So I called my rehearsal director and said, hey, look, I have to go to this doctor appointment. Don't worry. Everything is fine. I will be there ready for class. Don't worry. I'll make it. So he said, fine, you go there. 
just don't be late. So I go to the doctor's office. He does a couple tests. And right then he says, we need an x-ray. I was like, okay, cool. Still, I'm not thinking. I'm like, mm, maybe I got some tendonitis in my hip. He takes the x-ray and he comes right back because uh, here, I don't I don't know how it is in Australia, but here the x-ray machines are usually part of your um, part of that praxis. So he takes the x-ray, he comes back to me and he's like, you have to sit down. I'm like, okay. <laughs> he's like, there are holes in the, oh, I forget what it is. And I only know it in German now. Fana. So in the the cup of the hip and in the, the head of the femur that are one centimeter and two, you have three huge holes in the head of your femur and in your hip. He's like, we got to figure out what's going on. He's like, you are not going into dance today. I was like, oh, but I am. I must. <laughs> so he said, no, you're not doing anything. I'm going to call and get you an MRI now because I don't know what's happening in this hip. And at that point, his idea was probably ne uh, necrosis. So I go straight over and I call my rehearsal director and I say, look, I can't um, have another doctor's appointment. They're running a little late, still trying to play down this whole thing go and get the MRI. And this is unusual to, for it to happen in the same day. And my doctor says, come right back to me. That doctor is going to fax me over this the information back. So I went there. It was like maybe two hours later. Again, this is a rush, rush thing. Um, it normally doesn't go this fast. I come back into the doctor's office after the MRI and he sat me down and he said, you'll never dance again. You need to cancel the performance tonight. I don't even know your hip looks like it's 80 years old. And I was like, shit, are you serious? Like, I was shocked. He said, well, I'm, I might even get a little emotional. He said, that's the end of your career. And I said, well, I can't be like, I'm still walking around. Like he said, I don't, he said, here are our crutches. We don't know what's happening in your hip, but you have like a labral tear, the hip, like the whole disintegration of the hip is just really awful. So he gave me a pair of crutches and he said, go home. Here's like a, a, a doctor's note and you, you need to call out of the performance. And I said, I can't. I'm on stage. There's a thousand people that are going to be watching me. We got to do this performance. So I convinced him. I said, just let me do this performance and I'll take the doctor's note for tomorrow. I went home. I hid the crutches so Chris couldn't see the crutches because I didn't want He also had a performance that night. Um, I hid the crutches in the closet. I went and did my warm up, went on stage, knowing that that would be the last performance I ever did. Because I looked at those pictures and rough, they were, they were really not pretty. <laughs> so, I did my performance, which was beautiful because there's not so often as a dancer that you get to really enjoy that last moment of being on stage. It wasn't a perfect performance by any means, but it was very meaningful to me. I didn't tell anyone that was in my my cast. I didn't tell my then boyfriend. Um, I didn't tell also my dance partners because I didn't want them worried for me during that performance. And I finished the performance and... I gave my doctor's note in and then walked around on crutches for six weeks. Uh, like, again, high level uh, uh, anti-inflammatories, pain medication. Then I had a couple more tests and they figured out, well, it was a, a torn labrum. And then these cysts, the buildup, just the disintegration of the hip, hip dysplasia, like the whole, the whole thing. I searched for 
every every doctor that I went to said you need a hip replacement right now. But at that point, I was still deluded in my thinking that I I could dance again, and and it is so like deep in like I love dancing, um, and I didn't want to give it up in that way. So I searched everywhere, and on my thirteenth doctor, thirteenth uh, orthopedic that I saw, he said, "Okay, well we'll try with an arthroscopy and see what see what we could do." So I went for an arthroscopy first had a recovery um, that took about a year to recover from it. And then I tried dancing again and I lasted a week in the company. And I said, I can't do this anymore. Um, a lot of it was because my perspective had changed of not wanting to uh, give up my hard earned pain-free life, let's say. <laughs> And then I, then I waited, you know, every doctor still said you're going to have to have that hip replacement, but I waited and waited and waited until I then decided for the hip replacement. And so why did you decide to have the hip replacement? Because you said that you were pain-free after the arthroscopy. I was pain-free. I I was right until it started to not be pain-free anymore. I knew that the arthroscopy wouldn't hold out forever. Um, and I started the, my movement pattern started to shift over again. So the, my right hip is the one that was in or was injured. And so I started everything moving over to the left side, right? So I left leg dominant always. And no matter how much Pilates I was doing, how much all of the yoga, everything else, I still couldn't get out of that. And then the right hip started to hurt more and more. And then after a while, this is also years later, but still. I couldn't walk more than a couple blocks without it being in pain again. So when they did the arthroscopy, they took out all the, uh, they, I guess, repaired a little bit of the labrum or took out whatever they could. And they uh, cleaned up some of the little bone bits that were um, floating around, which I think was alle- uh, alleviated a lot of that pain. Had I had the chance to do that again, I would have gone straight to the hip replacement. It, hindsight's wonderful, isn't it? It's fantastic. <laughs> but, you know, it's possible that if you'd gone straight to the hip replacement, you would be sitting here now going, well, I had the hip replacement, but maybe I could have got away with just the arthroscopy. You know, maybe I could have kept dancing. That's true. That That is true. And and I I had to make that, I had to go through, I think, that process of the arthroscopy in order to close it up psychologically. Physically, it wasn't the best a decision, but mentally it was a hundred percent the right decision. In comparison, the arthroscopy to the the hip replacement, the hip replacement was a much easier recovery. I like that was, yeah, just totally different <laughs> as far as as far as how fast you can start moving around. I mean, your weight bearing from the first day with the with the hip replacement and with the arthroscopy, I think you're. I, I can't remember. It was such a long time ago, but it's a real uh, longer process before when you're allowed to put weight on on the leg. Mm. What was your rehab uh, like with the with the replacement? The replacement is soon as so I had an anterior method, and I, there are I guess several different ways to do the anterior method, but it should be, let's say they say easier for the muscles. I know they just tear them apart and I know it's a very brutal, uh, brutal surgery, which I will never watch on YouTube. <laughs> I don't want to know what happens. It just, <laughs> um, so afterwards you feel like you've been beaten up 
So it takes a little bit of time to uh, to start walking around. So it was like six weeks or so of just taking my time. And then after that, I started with uh, really light reformer work, um, but like it was minimal. I just needed to be moving my leg around a little bit more and also looking at different angles. They don't want you to go in that surgery into hip extension until a little bit after that six week mark for my surgeon, it was fine. So I started exploring what that was felt like crap, but just getting used to it. So was important to me. Then I just started slowly adding, adding movements and testing it out. I know other people that have had that surgery that are like, oh, after six weeks, I'm going to go for a jog. That was not my case. I needed more time. Do you, uh, and what range of motion and, and do you have now with that leg? I mean, I, for you guys as as professionals, you would see the difference, but um, almost, almost full mobility. What I can't do, um, even though I did ask my surgeon that I should be able to do it, but I haven't worked on it because it's kind of senseless. I can't bring my leg behind my head. So like any of these like fancy yoga things, I don't, I don't do that. Um, I don't do like a, like a Lotus because I don't feel the need to anymore. I could probably force it. I don't do, I don't do the splits unless I'm really warmed up. But I mean, this is, this is an extreme range of motion, like movement. I think for most people. Mm. That's, that's, I mean, yeah, I, if I had, if I had the ability to put my leg behind my head, I, that would be pretty cool. I mean, if I could touch my toes, I'd be happy. <laughs> I don't have any contraindications. So I, um, with this surgery, like I can cross over, go inwards. I could do pretty much whatever I want. Um, he said, act like you, like, like you have none. So that's what I do. Did they preserve the joint capsule, do you know, or the capsular ligaments? I believe so. I'm not 100% though. Half of this, also afterwards, like you have, I had the surgery in German, <laughs> in Germany. So that means that some of the questions that I had asked um, were not satisfied. Like I was in and out of anesthesia as I was getting my answers. So I'm not 100%. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I guess I've seen, the reason I'm very curious about this is because I've seen you doing Pilates a bunch on Instagram and I've seen you doing like straight single leg stretch and one leg circle and, and things that just look like, you know, I mean, I I never knew you had the hip replacement when I was watching those videos and I would have never guessed. That's good to hear. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I would say nine, 99% of my day, I'm not aware of it. Mm. When are you aware of it? Now I'm thinking about it. <laughs> right. Right, but not because it's hurting you or anything, just because, or it limits you, just because we're talking about it. Just because I'm talking about it. Um, there's some there's some funny things that happen, which are very, it's very hard to explain. Um which I'm still, okay, this would be something that I'm aware of. I have a sense, and this is like my my spidey sense, right? Um, uh, that my joints, right? Like w where my joint is, any joint is in space, gives me feedback to my brain and I'm able to understand where I am at, right? Like that's, maybe it's just as like many, many years of dancing and that's what that feels like in my brain. I don't know if there's any feedback that's coming back from, you know, back and forth from the joints. Yes, there is. 
Oh, okay. Well, that's good. Um, after the surgery, I could not figure out where my leg was in space for like a long time, like eight months. I couldn't tell you, like if I were to raise my leg behind me, I didn't know what the height was. I couldn't tell you the angle and all of these things. I, that's my, that's my expertise. I could, you know, I could do a millimeter of a change to make that happen, but it was completely lost on me. And I was trying to explain that to my doctor, like, is this going to come back? No, it doesn't come back because it's all fake. <laughs> but so the other parts of uh, the, I've had to train the other parts of my body to take up what that that joint was giving me because that's a big joint. It gives you a lot of information there. Um, and so that that was a really interesting process to sort of feel where that is. Maybe they didn't leave the capsular ligaments or the, or the capsule because uh, my understanding is there's lots of free nerve endings in those and mechanoreceptors in those ligaments that surround the joint that sense tension. And so they can sense if there's a stretch on the front of the joint or the back of the joint or whatever. And so that's that's a big part of your proprioceptive apparatus that tells your brain whether your leg's in flexion or extension or or whatever. And so now if you don't have a capsule or, or ligaments, you know, you've just got a bit of titanium and some ceramic, you know, and a bit of silicon facing on it. Um, well, so yeah, no wonder your brain's not getting that information back. But it's not that's not the only mechanism of proprioception. We have other you know, mechanisms. And part of it's like, would we sense tension in muscles, in the thigh muscles, in the, in the, the hip muscles, et cetera. So you, your brain has obviously rewired to, to use those other sources of information. Yeah. Now, now I would say it's, it's reliable. You know, that before I always had to, um, I had to check like visually, like look down. Oh yeah. Okay. That's where it is. And sort of like rebuild it or work with a mirror because, you know, as a dancer, (laughs) having that mirror as the feedback is what I'm used to. And it took a while to build that, that feedback loop back again. So, yeah. Well, I thought that was a really interesting process. I wouldn't, I, no one prepared me for that. I was prepared for the pain, but it wasn't even that bad. But that was, that was really freaky for me to not feel, not to feel in control of that. And so now that leg basically works like a bought one, except for leg behind the head, lotus, and doing the full splits when not warmed up. Yeah. I mean, not bad. That's amazing. So in principle, you could dance on it. In principle, I could. Yeah. Why don't you? Why didn't you? At that point, once I had, I I have heard of other dancers go back at back to dance after a hip replacement. Um, after I had left the dance world for that full year of of recovery, looking back in, when I went into the dance studio again, I couldn't fit my new person back in there. I don't know if that makes sense. Like I had just done so much growth and so much um, decision decision making of living larger than what the at that point, the dance world was uh, trying to put me in a little box, I felt. And I was just larger than that. And in order to get back into the that dance institution, you have to silence yourself. It, there's not enough room or time to have a big opinion about everything. <laughs> you know, And all your job is, is to produce movements as perfectly as possible and as fast as you learning as fast as you can. So 
I didn't want to dance after the arthroscopy for those reasons. And that's the same reason why I wouldn't want to dance now unless there is a choreographer out there that is, you know, willing to accept the whole me as me right now. Um, and I'm sure there's choreographers out there that would uh, like dancers that have more maturity. I mean, there's there's uh, there's whole dance companies built on that. There's just not that many of them. <laughs> so that's the, the long answer to your question. <laughs> So I'm trying to understand. Uh, is it is that a, a do you mean it's to do with that kind of perfectionism in a good way, like that a sort of obsession that you have to have to be elite at something? That really, you, you know, you know, the cost of that, or one of the costs of that, is you can't you can't focus on anything else. Is that what you're talking about? And then you went out and you had a larger life that had you know other things in it that weren't obsessing about being a better dancer 24 7 or something else yeah part of it is that and part of it is also being healthy mentally right there's there is so much uh, um there's different types of disordered body image and eating disorder that is programmed into the dance world not every dancer has a you know ed but it can be a constant thought that's there. And it's it's also like, because you're, you're faced with mirrors all the time. So I didn't want to be at all judgmental about my new body also. So my new body meant that I wasn't undernourished. I wasn't, you know, um, I, so that was a one aspect of it. So I didn't want to do that again. Um, another aspect was, I was living I was living my life in in a way that felt right to me and I didn't want to live under someone else's authority of dictating what I needed to do every day what I should be you know how long my hair should be should I what I should be wearing to rehearsals um am I allowed to get a tattoo like all this <laughs> all the stuff and that's all when do you have to sleep when are you eating like all all of that is sort of programmed out for you whether the director is telling you or it's just the schedule itself tells you what you have to do um I wanted to have more autonomy over my life and having like the you know having my own business that affords me that that freedom. Hmm. Amazing. So it, in some ways, there was a silver lining to it. Oh, 100%. Uh, you know, it's like the, it's the hardest thing that I've ever had to do was giving up dance. And also for me, probably one of the best things I've ever done. I've never regretted dancing. I think that it dancing made me who I am. I'm eternally grateful for all of the lessons, the both the hard ones, the traumatic ones, and you know, and the great parts of it, the freedom that I felt in my own body, the way that I was able to express myself, all the countries that I got to see with performing and the great friends that I made. Like it, it is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And just the same token, I was so glad to also give it up. <laughs> well, a- after the trauma, you know, after the last performance, all that, but to to be able to leave it and close that chapter and mindfully, you know, or working to mindfully take what's important to me from that that previous life and bring it into this new life, and what can I leave behind? What what doors need to stay closed? What a great place to end! Thanks so much for sharing that. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, Raf. Yeah, I've enjoyed our convo. See you on another one soon. Absolutely. 
after two exercise science degrees and over a decade and a half of reading research daily, I've condensed all the current science on rehab into a program called the Clinical Exercise Specialist Rehabilitation. Inside the program, I'll teach you to do three things. One, deeply understand how the body works. Two, confidently and expertly rehab literally any client. And three, get results for your clients. So ultimately, your clients tell their friends and you become known as the go-to expert in your area. This program is completely unlike any education you've done before, even if you've studied with us before, because of the way we've built the learning design. It's an online, flexible, skill-based learning program, which means you keep doing the skills under supervision until you're good at them. It's more of a mentorship model than a traditional course model. So rather than rushing through the content and having sort of one go at everything, you actually just practice live and we give you feedback and guidance and we dialogue and explore concepts together until you're highly skilled and confident. We just keep working the material until you get it. It's not rushed at all. It's not about ticking off the content. It's about engaging, practicing and applying it until you own it. This is a life-changing program, not some weekend certification. I've put my heart and soul into building this, and I can't wait to share it with you and help you discover your genius for anatomy and rehab. Now, because of the highly interactive nature of this program, we're only taking on 12 students worldwide. The program starts on March the 1st, and the first 12 qualified people to apply will be allowed to enroll. So if you're interested in learning more, click the link in the show notes and download the course guide or go to breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification menu in our link in the top menu. That's breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification link in the top menu.